Welcome back into another edition of Head Coach U. I'm Brian Fisher of D1 Ticker. Thrilled to welcome in Bronco Mendenhall, the former BYU and Virginia coach once again. Bronco, how are you? I'm great, Brian. Good to see you. It sounds like it was a, a busy weekend for you, but uh, not because you're you're sitting down watching uh, some some crazy college football ending. You're you're moving again. I, I would imagine that process as as a coach, you, you're almost kind of familiar with at this point. I, I've been really lucky being at BYU for 13 years and then Virginia for six. I haven't had the typical, at least at the head coach position, I haven't had the typical movement there. But as the, an assistant. There's lots of moves and lots of stops as you just kind of find your way and work your way up. In this particular case, mission is almost accomplished. Uh, one of our designs, my wife and I for pausing from coaching this year was to set up our infrastructure for kind of the assault camp on launch, launching chapter two of our career. And that's um, headquartered here in Montana. So we actually get to move into our home today, our ranch, at least to have basic infrastructure and get up and functioning is about a month away. And so really by the time November hits, uh, that'll be one of the main reasons that we uh, we stopped is to get all this set up for kids and grandkids and a place for the summer, but also just be together. So we're we're getting close and, and yeah, moving in today, which we're really excited about. Well, as, as stressful as, as moving might be, you, you also have the kind of ranching component you get you got to worry about up there as well. Are, do you get up earlier doing that than you did being a, being a coach? It's similar, Dif- different type of work. One is getting up and well, at, at Virginia, especially the academic rigor there was amazing and challenging, but also awesome. And wanting our players to maximize every class they could take and every sequence of class they could take in order. We practice really early to get ahead of all that. So we truly could have and right. They could play amazing football and have a super experience, but then they wouldn't be limited in any way because of football in terms of the access to the magical education that was there. So early, early get ups there, but it was team meetings and right onto the practice field. And here it starts with feeding and cleaning stalls and, and the things that really, but similar, taking care of others before yourself. Just, in this case, it's just horses <laughs> rather than players. Well, and I'm totally getting off topic here, but but I'm kind of curious <laughs> about that that move, you know, to early morning practices. It seems like that's a, a fairly recent trend for, for a lot of head coaches. I remember, you know, when, when I first started out uh, covering beats, uh, you know, it was always kind of the, the late afternoon practice after kids got out of class. But it, but it seems like not only uh, is there that focus on academics and allowing them to go to, go to class, you know, the rest of the day, um, it, it seems like that, that has been the preference of, of coaches more and more to just get that morning practice and get it out of the way. You know, I think for each coach, it's different. It started for me at Brigham Young University. There, so many married players, you know, between 30 and 40 per year is kind of where where we were in my tenure. And when you consider the classes and then some of those players, right, they have children and their wives are working and they're both trying to make ends meet and the possible conflicts that could come up later in the afternoon or evenings. It just seemed like something that, that wasn't ideal for that institution right? The kids that were attending there and to give them their best chance to do it all because they're right. It wasn't just football and it wasn't just school. You add the faith-based element, but then you add the marital component. And so really it just made a lot more sense to move the football at the very, very, very beginning and get that work done. And so kind of the merger of all other priorities in their lives could come together in a way that they wanted it to happen rather than football kind of being inserted right in the middle of all that. And so it started for me at BYU, which I really liked. And then I read a great book called Spark. And Spark has done some amazing research or within the book, there's some amazing research on on the benefits of exercise on learning. 
And I started to be captivated by, well, wait a second, maybe by your heart rate being elevated, there's proof that then you're more ready for the learning environment. And that book goes on to document just that. So I felt then, and our programs have always done really, really well academically. I can't say that that's the only reason, but I think it contributed. Where the day was started, uh, there was a heightened sense of arousal and readiness uh, for the day, but also for learning. And so that book, if anyone hasn't read it, it's, it's worth the read if you're considering uh, in your own day or even an organization starting early to prepare for learning. Uh, the name of it's Smart, but that's that's how it started. And at Virginia, the afternoons weren't quite the same with marital or, or those kind of challenges, but the academic rigor, but also just the access. Uh, I certainly didn't want football to be the reason that some of the classes couldn't be taken uh, when there's so much to be value added there. So it just seemed to fit much better for, for all things, which is what I'm interested in, right? The complete development of a young person. And, and I think that in, in the, the book by Jim Collins, it was called Good to Great. He, Good to Great, he called it the tyranny of, of or. Um, and a lot of us, you know, we make trade-offs. We're going to pick this or that. Many times it doesn't need to get down to that. Um, there's a beauty of and, if you really architect your day and your organization and plan now it's extra work and it's harder. Uh, however, it's way more rewarding and I'll put it this way. I'm going to just kind of segue. I don't know many of my peers and I've worked with so many great, great people in the head coaching world that were retained because of their graduation rate or retained because of the number of community service hours or retained because of the foundation of giving back that they uh, presented to a community if they didn't win. Right. So the bottom line as a leader is um, you have to drive great results on the field. Right. That that has to happen. It's then how much of your own time are you willing to put into other things that you really think will add value, knowing that compensation won't be part of that, but just internal kind of morality and decency, but really caring about other people and having making sure they can have a great experience. And so anyway, back to this idea of early morning practice, it was that idea of and there's no reason football has to be in place of academic progression. There's no reason football has to be in place of a husband and wife and managing daycare, you know, with when they're college students and no money. So it was just the idea of how do we do all of this? And I, I like that idea. Well, believe me, I, I certainly understand the, uh, the the daycare standpoint as, as well with, with two little ones here at, at home. But, uh, you know, it, it's been a, been a week filled with uh, a lot of stories around college football. One, one of them has, has been kind of in, in relation to you. I just wanted to kind of get it out of the way, you know, get the elephant out of the room. Uh, you know, a lot of, in, you know, discussion now that uh, the Nebraska job has opened up. Arizona State uh, recently came open with uh, Herm Edwards deciding to part ways uh, with that program. Your name has been mentioned, you know, quite a few times by pundits and analysts and, and people with all these lists. And, and I'm just kind of curious. How, how you kind of react to that and, and hearing your name connected to those openings? Number one, it, it's flattering. Um, and, and I'm certainly appreciative, but also it's part of the business, right? Uh, the tough part about being a head football coach is you're under constant, scru con constant scrutiny and there's huge expectations, especially at a place like Nebraska, Arizona state, or really anywhere. Um, those things are real and it's, more of a trend now when early seasons don't go exactly as planned, especially if there's any kind of maybe residue from a previous season or a tenure that doesn't seem where momentum is being generated. The level of patience now uh, really diminishes pretty early. And so here we are week three or week four and coaching changes have happened. My wife and I paused intentionally after 17 years not to walk away 
and not to retire, but to rethink, reframe, and then reassault, I guess if that's even a word, our entry and re-entry back into college football, we haven't found anything in this time period as op- opportunities have come to impact young people that's greater than the world of college athletics. We were wondering, is there something? We were looking, could there be anything that rivaled that? And the answer for us, my wife and I, is no, there isn't. And so it's flattering to be mentioned. I think there's all kinds of documentation on uh, the history of, uh, I love taking programs that haven't had success or recent success and recaptivating, re-energizing and rebuilding and having them become constant winners while amazing people are being built and academics are thriving and community engagement is high and, and there's championships won. I like all of that. And possibly that's why my name is being mentioned, but Holly and I are are looking to re-enter. We're excited for that opportunity. Uh, certainly there would be interest um, at Nebraska, at Arizona State. The, the main point would be though, any place that really wants to develop amazing young people through championship football, right? We want both of those things. And that's, that's where our passion and my passion lies. And there's probably not another college head football coach is more energized now after riding horses almost every day, building properties in Montana, training for a triathlons and just regrouping with a clearer mind, fresher perspective. Um, Cause I know what the man, I know what the job takes and it's very difficult to sustain. Uh, I didn't even know the rest of the world existed during the fall, which is what I'm seeing now, which has just made football that much more special to me. So lots of learnings, but lots of excitement. My wife and I are super encouraged where and how we'll end up. Uh, we'll see, but we are clear uh, developing young people through amazing football is, is what we want to do. And that's been a great gift that we've learned over this past eight months ish. I mean, we've, we've talked about a, a little bit on this podcast in terms of what you are looking for in, in a program to take over going forward. And, and a lot of that is uh, a bit of a rebuilding challenge. Both those places would, would, would qualify at this point, uh, given what they're going through or, or about to co- go through in the case of Arizona State with some some NCA uh, investigations yeah. kind of hovering around that program. Um, but but in terms of like the, the actual like inherent qualities of, of, of a program that you're going to look yeah. at and consider, is there kind of one thing overriding uh, beyond anything else? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I appreciate the question. It, it's purpose and intent there. Let, let's just face it, Brian, the game is moving very quickly, right? We're actually talking about a game that's played in against the backdrop um, of higher education. The number of times you hear higher education mentioned in any discussion at any time right now in college football it, you might have to flip the page over and look at the very bottom to see the, the notes, but you don't hear it that the money associated with possibly alcohol sales at the stadium, possibly conference realignment because of a TV deal, uh, the NIL, which is where can the dollars come from at a higher level than where people currently are and what are they willing to do to chase those things? I like the idea of a construct of, and again, make, make no mistake, winning is not a the expendable part of this, right? It's essential for that to happen no matter where you're coaching. And there's no, there's nothing more fun than having success on the football field and seeing your team happy. I'm looking for places that absolutely and fiercely want that almost to where they, they can't breathe without it or sleep without the success. One of the things I always used to share with my team, this isn't just what you do, it's how you do it. I, I want an institution that certainly we want 
to compete at the highest level against anyone, anywhere, uh, at any time, quite frankly, and are looking forward to taking on that challenge and won't back down from, from anyone with young people that are, are, are probably studying like crazy on the plane flight over, right? Have great family relations, possibly with this new NIL focus, what they're willing to give back to the community and how can they leave a lasting impact, not just what they can get from, I'll make something up, a shoe deal or a, an advertisement, but what can they then say this institution and this community's better because I was here. I'm looking for a place that wants all of that. And that to me is fulfilling and, and make no mistake, Brian, it's way harder to do that. Uh, and many coaches, quite frankly, don't, it's not that they don't see the value in it, but where's the time to do that? I'm just not fulfilled without that part also. And so I'd love an institution that wants great, great football and wants championships at the very highest level and wants to fund and resource and, and help kids become within that arena, but also not at the expense of, of who they're becoming and, and what they can give back. And so I, I think, yeah, purpose and intent have a lot to do with it. Well, I, I want to dive into that NIL topic in, in, in just a little oh. bit, but, you know, for, first and foremost, you know, your, your last trip, uh, speaking of Nebraska, the last time you were, you were there, a pretty famous Hail, Hail Mary that uh, you guys <laughs> had to, to, to get the win there uh, against the Cornhuskers. I'm sure the fan base uh, certainly remembers that on, on both sides of the, the coin uh, when you were with BYU. But, um, you know, late, late game clock management has, has been a bit of an issue. It kind of popped up again in, in college football. We had a number of Hail Marys this past weekend. We, the NFL, uh, a few clock issues for, for some head coaches. I'm just kind of curious how you approach approach that and how, how you might practice kind of that situational football at the end to get your guys prepared uh, for, for some of those situations where, you know what, uh, you know, the clock is ticking down and you got to score and it, it, it can be a lot. And we see a lot of mistakes recently. We saw that this yeah. weekend. How, how do you kind of approach that and make sure your team is prepared for those kind of two minute drills? Mm, I, I love the question. M much like anything in life or in our organizations, you know, practices are very relevant but the specificity of practice and how deliberate the practice is and the context it's in are essential. And a lot of times coaches will, will easy, easily rationalize, well, how many times, and I'll, I'll just use short yardage for, or goal line defense for it. Well, how many goal line defenses will we call? So they go back for 15 years and say, well, that that's about 1% of all plays are going to be a goal line defensive play. So how much time do we put in put, in on it at practice, justifying, man, there's other things we could be doing. That sounds logical until you need a goal line stand to win a game. Yeah. The same thing would be with Hail Mary defense or offense. If you look at the number of snaps, not as relevant. If you look at the contextual implications of the snaps, it makes you want to practice it almost first every day once you've gone through either a victory or a loss that way. So there's the contextual intentional, deliberate component of practicing it and those decisions, but also then there's the game day structure and process. And I'll frame it just this way. I love analytics and we're very, well, I would say pioneer oriented. Uh, Matt Edwards ran that department for us at the University of Virginia. And then we had super bright students at Virginia that were, that were in the uh, engineering and analytics departments that were man, we had every intern available, almost our, our own little sub factory of analytics. And we had a book uh, literally on game day based on any given opponent that would tell me regardless of score. So it would give me the exact score with the exact time on the clock within the exact quarter and field position 
And I'd be saying, what do the numbers say? And it could give me the tendencies of whether to go for it on fourth down. I would have the numbers coming in real time, just in a kind of a matter of fact, uh, no drama way, almost just like there's a recording, right? And so I could always be framing a play in context to not only that game, but what does the history show of that opponent, of that staff, right? And what they did and when, and then what are our percentages of winning uh, if this fourth down conversion is either gone for or not, et cetera. And so that was happening all the time. So literally when we got about to the 40 yard line, even before we've crossed the 50, I'd start asking, what do the numbers say in relation to the clock, in relation to the score, in relation to the field position? So that had already started. Now, if you go to the end of the game, it was the exact same process where I had the analytics already dialed in for that opponent. But then we'd have a process owner. So our quarterback coach, his name was Jason Beck. And Jason has no emotion. Literally, he's blue-green. If, if you looked at the brain dominance, and so factual, analytical, sequential, with the heart rate that I'm not sure ever has gone past like 45, no matter how wild the circumstance. And so going back to Nebraska, so he's the owner of all of our timeouts within two minutes, and then talking to me while analytics are talking to me. At the same time, they're taking turns, but that way I'm forming a perfect construct of what does this really mean uh, from the tactical Right. And the and the timeout orientation, as well as the implications of any play we run and then the usage, not only of the timeout, but again, of of how aggressive or non-aggressive do we need to be against that particular opponent? So anyway, all that's happening in the headset and you'll see the head coach and you don't see any of that. But that's what's going on, at least in my in, in my headset, which was an amazing and really well designed system. And then what will happen is that process owner, which in my case, the two minute owner. Right. He's the one that's supposed to lose sleep over it all week long to make sure we get it right, to advise me, right? I still have to decide, but you want your advisor to be totally prepared. So my analytics advisor, black circles under his eyes and because he's got young kids and he's got his job and he's doing the and, right? Same with my quarterback coach. That allowed me then to have all of that. And then I make the decision. If I made the decision, it certainly, if I made a poor decision, it certainly wasn't because I was ill-informed. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes intuition just kind of, it just kind of takes over. And I would hear on the headset, are you sure? <laughs> and no, but I think I am. And sometimes you just have to go with that. I'm okay with that knowing because everything else has been framed so clearly with the data that if intuition and experience then says, I don't think so, then the head coach has the right to pull away from that. What's not excusable or what's um, some of the problems is when you don't have the accurate information and the intuition is all you're going on. It's really easy to have emotion and intuition be prevalent only when you're in those situations. So anyway, each process needs an owner, man, the more critical the process, the more distinct that ownership needs to be to the entire organization. I didn't want any other voices, my analytics, Matt Edwards and Jason Beck, no other voices on the headset, no nothing, only those two, the 65,000 or 85 or 50 or 40. I couldn't control any of them and how noisy it was, but I could listen to who owned those processes to help me frame the decision. And I was framing the decision for my team, right? And there's nothing more fun to see happiness and smiles and celebration when it goes well. Uh, And we alluded to the Hail Mary against Nebraska. And I'll tell that story here in just a second. But that process for us, we we spent hours and hours and hours because you can play an entire game three and a half hours long, right, or, or, or low three hours-ish, and it can come down to 
Well, at one point, the NFL did a study and, and I got my hands on it. Basically, three to five plays was determining outcome in a typical NFL game, you know, because parity is the ideal there. In college football, it's getting that way. Um, I would say within conferences, especially, uh, there's different levels of college football um, uh, being deciphered. But anyway, three to five plays ultimately determines outcome in so many games. Those three to five plays are usually in the context of right? A goal line stand, converting a fourth down, a Hail Mary, things that you wouldn't think you'd practice much, but the context and and implications, shoot, they make you disproportionate. No, a head coach can then choose to practice those disproportionate to their volume because of impact. And I like doing that. Hopefully that made sense. That was a long answer. No, no, that, that makes total sense. And 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 the the difficult part is you are dealing with with kind of eighteen to twenty four year olds who, <laughs> as as much as you might practice and, and kind of drill down, you know, you you got to get out of bounds, you know, at, at this this juncture. Sometimes they get tackled in bounds, and you kind of got to adjust on the fly. And I, I'm curious how you make sure that you can listen to all that coming in, and also kind of make those split second decisions to to go for it or or kind of change course uh, right there. That that seems to be kind of the crux of, of some of the issues that we've yeah. seen with, with these late game uh, management situations. Yeah, I love that question because certainly as much as you plan, I don't remember a single game that ever went exactly as I thought it was going to go. And literally from the first play on, here's what you've prepared for all week. And while the schemes and strategies might be similar, how the game progressed, rarely did it ever go according to plan. And so in those kind of micro segments you're talking about, and let's just talk about going out of bounds, hopefully our timeout usage has been great. And in those moments, right, before the team is back on the field, each position coach with me as well to the entire group saying, okay, this is our plan. Now it could be adjusted, but if, right, any ball is caught out, you know, out of bounds is where we need to be as fast as possible. We're expecting to run two plays here and then a timeout. So we're, we were trying to forecast for them as much as possible with key reminders. Then, right, we're looking at the quarterback Uh, And we're looking at key other leaders for receivers. Again, process owners, right? The quarterback is owning the offense. A receiver is owning other receivers. Uh, Offensive lineman is owning other offensive linemen for the key reminders of, let's say it's a crucial, uh, the clock is running out. It might be third and one. And we know the defense is going to possibly flinch to draw us off sides or or something like that. But there's then sub owners within that process on the field that are responsible for the critical reminders. And they're being trained during the week as well, but they're also being reminded in those scenarios. So to say, yeah, all 11 should know what to do. Yep. I agree to not have a sub owner, right. As the additional reminder, kind of like the Sergeant over each group, right. Uh, It made sense for us to do that. So at least you had another layer for those unexpected or when things went different where they could say, you know, get out of bounds or the quarterback would say, you know, we got to clock it now because something just happened. And we certainly we're yelling from the sideline. He doesn't really have time uh, to look and process as much without already having a great understanding of what the plan is. And so sometimes as hard as this is going to sound, man, you're going to play exactly as your players are prepared and they're going to play and they're going to perform exactly as you prepared them in those critical moments. And those process owners, like I'm saying, wow, does that help? And so it empowers them, much like special forces, right? In, in the military, they're looking to empower the really critical um, uh, moments into the hands of the boots on the ground that are in the situation. So I'm going to stop just short of that, but that would be my ideal, right? Is when you could get players trained so well 
that in real time uh, they could do that. And sometimes without a timeout or in unexpected circumstances, that would have to happen. So we tried to um, account for that as well. And hopefully you could kind of follow that train of thought. As as a defensive coach, is, is it as satisfying knocking that down or, or getting an interception on, on those Hail Mary type of plays as it is uh, possibly get, being on the other end and, and scoring on, on those type of plays to kind of walk it off? Well, it, it's relief is what it is. It, and right after the relief, then there's the celebration and gratification. But but at first, it's, at first it's relief. And it's it, it reminds you literally of going into your neighborhood and playing an old game called 500, you know, where there'd be like six or eight kids and someone would be like, 20 or 30 yards away, throwing the ball as high as they can. And you try to catch it or catch it off one bounce and you get different points. This is just the stakes are so much higher, but that's really all it is. What makes you feel bad as a coach? And this happened to me, uh, I think once in my career, we had a Hail Mary that was tipped around and an offensive player was on the ground on his back. And somehow it, it, it fell through all of that, literally onto his chest and he's on the ground and, and we don't win. And so then... It went only not only to players knocking the ball down in a backstop, but almost like someone being the vacuum cleaner as well. So you kind of add different parts sometimes by scenarios you couldn't even imagine, but then you better account for. And some when you when you see one of those additional elements work that you plan for, now that's really gratifying. So again, the easy answer, relief. You're just so happy it got knocked down uh, that an entire game can come down to something of a game of 500. But the execution of the design, that's what's so gratifying. And and that's when the hugs are a little deeper uh, because you felt like as a coach, you feel like you had an influence on helping your team. They executed what you had practiced, but what you asked them to practice worked. And now that's a good feeling. Conversely, yeah, I've had schemes and designs where they did what I asked them to do and the design was faulty. And those are lonely moments. And the best way for those is just to take direct accountability. And it's hard, it's hard, but necessary to look in your player's eyes and just say, it's totally my fault. I thought this would work. And you did exactly what you're supposed to do. And those are, those are hard moments. Um, they're overcomable, but that's, I've had some of those too. Well, we, we kind of saw both both sides of those coins this past weekend. You know, there was a, a Cal uh, against Notre Dame when they had a Hail Mary kind of bounced around and, and ended up landing right on, right in the uh, the chest of somebody. They didn't end up catching it, uh, so Notre Dame survived. And then, of course, the App State, uh, you know, walk-off, uh, which is a, a wild scene there in Boone after everything that went in uh, that they ended up uh, getting the uh, the victory over mm-hmm. Troy. So uh, both sides, we, we saw it in the NFL as well, some some crazy endings as well. So I think that's uh, for, for coaches out there that are, that are listening. I think a lot of the, what you just said, not only in terms of the analytics part, but how you kind of approach uh, game management will be uh, something yeah. that they can take to heart. I, you know, what, one of the things, if I could just summarize the hardest decision, again, to kind of ca- encapsulate what we just talked about, devoting practice time on areas within the plan or the game that by volume doesn't seem reasonable, but by implication <laughs> demands it. And I, I've learned that lesson and will be two, three, four, five times to one those critical moment practices at the expense of some other things that really need to get done. Cause can you imagine? And, and I've been on the Appalachian state side of those games. And I've also been on the Troy side and those weeks are completely different. You're trying to help young people overcome um, as much as you can during the week. But can you imagine and literally identities are shaped by the outcome of one play almost at random of a ball being thrown up and 
and seasons are being defined, right? And so anyway, that led to the practice structure um, that I've ended up uh, doing because of that. And so I think in summary, that's, I wasn't sure I hit that clear enough. Just wanted to go back and hit that. No, absolutely. And I'm sure, you know, speaking to that, uh, the Detroit head coach, John Summerall this week, probably, probably using that as a bit of a motivation factor as well, you know, saying we, we, we can not only get back up and, and pick ourselves up, but uh, we can kind of use this as motivation throughout the season. But the whole reason I, I wanted to uh, to talk with you to this this week was uh, we, we had a little bit of news last week that Lead One, which is a kind of an association of, of athletic directors, uh, kind of voted uh, to have some discussions surrounding college football governance. And, you know, there's always been this kind of theory that maybe it needs to be split out away from the NCA, uh, you know, and, and kind of broken off maybe under the college football playoff banner, maybe some some other organization kind of uh, responsible, I guess you could say, uh, for kind of governing FBS football. And I, I, I'd be curious to kind of get your thoughts on, on that in terms of how, how you think the sport should be governed. I know you've worked with the FCA and, and, and a number of organizations about uh, just kind of how, how to kind of shepherd the game along. But uh, what, what are your kind of thoughts on, on how not only is the game governed right now, but, but how should it be governed in the future? Yeah, there's a lot in there to unpack. Um, I was a board member on the the AFCA, which is the American Football Coaches Association, for a long time, going all the way back to early days at Brigham Young. So my whole tenure there, and through Virginia, so most of my career, I've I've been privy and to so many of these issues. And early on, Grant Taft was the president of the AFCA, and I went to him at one point, and this was long uh, ten years easy. And I went to him and I said, you know, I think these meetings would be, would be much more efficient if they were divisional. So here's the NAIA coaches that have a meeting similar to this because all the board members would be together and we're talking about issues inherent to all of college football. And then division two, I was suggesting should meet together and the FCS would meet together. The group of five would meet together and power five would meet together. Even within power five now, there are some differences, but I, I was thinking the relevancy of um, the governance and the management even then seemed to be um, so much, there was a lot of disparity and the issues were not the same issues. And so I saw it back then. And so to your point now, certainly there's there's uh, intrigue about breaking off, uh, but breaking off where and to whom. And and so there, the disparities, the, the, um, the divergence, I would say, between Power Five and even within Power Five to others is money driven, right? The finances are are really what's creating that. When NIL became real, um, the governance or the infrastructure was not ready for that. And we all knew it wasn't ready. And I'll frame that just because the, the hardest part and where most coaches had the biggest issues with the, the governing body, which was the NCAA of college football, was enforcement and enforcement specifically to recruiting. There wasn't the staffing, there wasn't the oversight, and quite frankly, there weren't enough resources um, to manage the number of decisions, the, the number of teams not doing what they're supposed to do, and the accountability uh, through uh, enforcement staff and, legisla and, and, and the legislation or the bureaucracy, I would say, uh, to then end up coming to swift and certain accountability. And so uh, coaches and programs would be looking at how can they do that? And even though they might have been called on it, the process would take so long between then and anything that was done about it, that actually act was kind of a, a, a promoting or giving this appearance that uh, it's, it's really not enforceable. So anyway, that was the existing backdrop prior to NIL. 
okay, well now let's add money to this. And so this immediate thought that the NIL is going to first and foremost benefit your current players, that's that's a, an amazing thought. And I am all for young people learning to manage their finances. It's back to and, right? Here's school, here's their family, here's their football team. Uh, oh, and they they can do this as well. It's hard enough to manage academics really well, to play football really well, to have a social life if they want one, and then now add another component. So if we can help them do that, well, that's what real life is. As you mentioned, you have young kids and there's stuff going on, right? So let's help them do that. But we all knew as coaches, immediately that was going to shift to pay for play, meaning the pre- the predominant use of NIL was going to be in the attraction of players to a program, which then all of a sudden the collective show up because, right, communities they support their teams. And if they can get better players through finance um, and it's supposed to be for, uh, for hire, right? Uh, and be worthy of your hire. But we already knew the enforcement part and the recruiting was the weakest component to begin with. Let's add money to that now and then say, well, okay, now who's gonna govern that? Um, the NCA reached out asking for help, right? Institutional help. Well, that's because there's no, the enforcement already wasn't capable. So I don't have any issue with NIL of current players. The issue that I have is the front end. And quite frankly, if you were to ask my colleagues, every recruiting meeting is starting with, as they bring up a player, who wants him and for how much, right? So, and that's not college football in my opinion, or it's original intent, which is framed against higher education. So that part needs management. I think what the athletic directors are saying is who who does that and could it go possibly into a subgroup? So could Power Five um, within the NCA have its own governance structure and enforcement staff and somehow it partners with each institution um, and maybe someone's embedded in each, each, each institution, right? On site and on grounds and within the football office that's helping do that. And then maybe group of five has its own within the NCAA because the the variances are quite different. What the group of five has to deal with are then their players when they perform well being taken right through the transfer portal. And, and again, a lot of that's through third party, right? And third party contact is not legal, but the high school coaches are kind of now being, I don't know, inserted into that role. So there's that dynamic. So the group of five coaches, their issue is keeping the good players they have. Power five is having the finances through collectives to manage and to truly get players that want to come to their institution. But unfortunately, I'm not sure, Brian, and these are my my own thoughts. When a young person is choosing a school now, uh, certainly football has to be prevalent. And how good at that is that team going to be in the coaches and their development? Uh, I'm wondering then where the money fits versus their education. And if you're saying, OK, which is getting more stock? I think right now, and this is a theory that football is first, maybe their finances are first. I don't know, right? It might be their finances are first, the football is second, and the education is third. Uh, a theory, right? And I, I open that up to people to consider what their thoughts are. I'm not saying for sure I'm right. It might be football's first, right? And then their NIL possibilities, and then their academics. At Virginia, I certainly would have hoped, man, the football and academics going together would have been up right there. And then my thoughts on NIL are quite different. The, the main issue back to governance that I have is the enforcement. So the NCA is well equipped for so many um, things and does, I think does a lot well, 
but the enforcement of the, the selection, assessment, and recruiting is not close. And the NIL component has made that worse. Back to an ideological standpoint, the thing that really bothers me most about NIL as we're talking about the front end of players coming, I would say just the opposite. If we really, really care about these kids, what does the back end look like for NIL? So when these kids graduate, which I don't hear mentioned very much, when they get their master's degree, which I don't hear mentioned very much, then what's their, what is their network what does their NIL look like then to launch into right life after an amazing college career to then have in perpetuity, just this amazing life. And I haven't heard hardly any emphasis on the back end. And so it's moved basically to this enticement of come to our school as the first and foremost reason for NIL. Secondly, help current players within your program. And lastly is them on the way out. It would seem to me, all that might be backwards in terms of uh, maybe what would be best for young people. These kids that have helped our program so much, maybe we ought to be thinking about how they best ought to get launched into their future with the right infrastructure, right? And the best possibilities, then caring for, right? The players that are currently in our program. And then after that, the other way. And I know I just broke it into three categories. It all has to go on at the same time, but I think we might have it upside down. Um, Back to this idea of, of lead one, I think they're just seeing the, N, the NCA structure is capable in a lot of ways, but the, the flaws right now to me are the differences between division of college football, the specificity of issues, and then the enforcement of how do you manage now with the increased money and competition, which is already there uh, for schools that just simply aren't uh, playing by the intent of the rules. And there are many, um, and that's, uh, that's unfortunate. Uh, but that's currently how it is. Can it be addressed? Certainly. Will it take time? Certainly. Um, but again, it's higher education and the development of young people. And it appears like it's gone only. No, that's too strong a word. It's gone more to entertainment and finance as the primary drivers. And uh, I would just like to see it all happen at the same time, just not so maybe one-sided. Yeah, and a lot of the ADs kind of voted to essentially kind of remain within the NCAA structure, but kind of make those changes that you were alluding to, to make it mm. more for the Power Five, make it more for kind of the group yeah. of five FCS. You know, the Football Oversight Committee at the NCAA, you know, they're responsible for everything from you know kind of running the uh, FCS postseason tournament to certifying FBS bowl games. So, like, they have a lot on their plate, and, and I think uh, being nimble is one of the big things that, that a lot of ADs and, and a lot of people in, in college athletics w- would like to see. And we're, we're going to probably see that uh, over the coming uh, weeks and months. You know, the D- Division One Transformation yeah. Committee— uh, is kind of looking at how Division One fits together, and a lot of focus might be more on the basketball tournament and, and access to that. But that's also going to have a, a football component. So uh, I'm sure a topic that we will continue to discuss, uh, on, not only in this podcast but uh, going forward in, in the industry. And I, I you, you you mentioned nil. I do want to kind of dive into that a, a little bit. And I, I I get that complaint from from coaches all the time, just in, in terms of the the lack of enforcement. And it's different too for for a lot of coaches around the around the country because you know you might be working in, in Ohio and have a, a state law there that you know could could make things a lot more difficult than if, if you're working in Texas and I, I I sense that frustration amongst a lot of coaches just in terms of dealing with things and not having that level playing field I, I would imagine that is the kind of the overriding factor for for a lot of folks just saying let's let's at least be on the same page when it comes to Nil right it, it is and I think the same page is relevant and again that's my my thought about specificity and and so the pac 12 you'd certainly if you're in the pac 12 you you would like it to be. Uh, as level as possible within your own conference, certainly. 
right? The Big Ten, you would like it to be as level as possible within that. The SEC, the ACC, you would certainly want that. And, and so the state laws then in some cases make that more challenging, right? And, and that is very difficult. I, I think that's probably part of where some of the ideas of some of the money coming to conferences being uh, distributed to the players, right? It, it, let's say NIL went away. I'm just going to make something up. If NIL went away, but some of the television contracts went to the players on a percentage basis, right? Then it would be a level playing field, right? There would be by playing, you get this amount. It's almost like the scholarship check, except here's this other part, right? That's way easier to enforce uh, than the NF, the NIL and the collectives. And again, I'm not suggesting that I'm just, I'm trying to give a, a an idea of that's what most coaches want. The different, the difficulty within that, is without another break. So the group of five and their resources versus the power five and their resources. And then quite frankly, television contracts within the power five, each one of those is different right now. And so the coaches that are complaining, quite frankly, they're always going to be complaining unless it's in relation to their own league, right? Or then possibly a couple of leagues combining that are level in playing field. The idea that this will ever be equal, when has it ever been and when will it ever be? The closest to that is then with another subgroup breakoff of those schools that are generating X amount of dollars or are willing to spend this much in terms of budget. Uh, there is as close to level playing field as you're going to get right financially. Those that fall short of that are the next tier. And there might be, I don't know, 30 or 40 of those then. If, if level playing field is the idea, then that's, again, be careful of what you wish for, because that it might be, you know, super five and then power five. And then, and if there's access for all of those different tiers into the tournament, uh, pretty fun. We see that in basketball, right? And we saw that with the Sun Belt and some of their upsets. Uh, so you compete like crazy with like-minded and like resource programs. And that's not to say that that caliber of player and coach on the right day into the playoff couldn't then do something magical. And that's, uh, I, I think that's kind of some of the idea of our, how our country was kind of formed. Right. And, but the idea then to your point of uh, a level playing field, um, if you're talking about resources, I don't know how that happens without another tiering system, so to speak, or just quite frankly, acknowledging the tiering and then doing everything you can within conferences for sure, then hopefully within level for sure to have it be equal. But that's going to be quite a challenge without maybe um, not another tier or two. Yeah. And I mean, I, I talked with uh, Sunbelt Commissioner Keith Gill uh, last week, just in terms of, uh, you know, the Sunbelt and, and how they had the big Saturday uh, last week. And, they did awesome. and, and it was so, fun. you know, he, he kind of mentioned, you know, in, in a 12 team playoff world, you know, how, how much enhanced that that would be, because that, that could be for, for one of those spots in the playoffs. But, uh, you know, just in terms of NIL, I guess we'll, we'll get our, get you out of here with with this. At, at, during okay. this pause, as as you have been kind of thinking about about the future, and, and we, we alluded to it a little bit earlier, but, um, you know, as, as your kind of approach to NIL and, and how you would incorporate that inside your own program uh, change a little bit as, as you look out uh, across the landscape and, and what you, uh, your, your day-to-day -day process and your kind of overall philosophy, how, how you would incorporate NIL, has that changed these last couple of months? It, it really has. Uh, again, I love education. 
I love learning and I love kids preparing for amazing careers that they can't wait to do, you know, when football's over. I love that thought. And I wasn't sure, could, could that happen while they have NIL and going to school and playing and doing their social? Could all that, could all that really happen? And the answer is yes. And you and I do it all the time, right? Between our marriages, between our jobs, between any other social interests that we have, between philanthropy or giving back, between coaching Little League games, be, whatever it is, there's a lot going on. And so I was thinking, what great preparation for these kids to have a lot going on in college and, and with the infrastructure and mentors to be helping them. What What's become really clear to me is, as I alluded to, that's not going to be enough only from the college part. There's going to need to be much like when you go into your profession or my profession, there are coaches that mentored me that had a huge influence once I was in my career and I graduated from college and that education was ongoing. I, I love the idea uh, of, again, thinking back to Virginia, so some of the best and brightest minds on all the planet have graduated from UVA and possibly their mentorship of those kids when they move on with their masters or their undergrad from UVA and, and they get to be tutored or mentored almost again in perpetuity of here's life, but because you went to UVA, you get access to, right? This is your support team that um, that's gonna help you navigate the world and we're united by this UVA education. And I started thinking about that. I got excited about just the lasting implications of then what college football can do on the back end. The front end enforcement's driving everything. And I don't have great answers for that yet. Um, but during, I love that idea of all the education and all the help we can give those kids to, to maximize uh, that possibility while they have it. At the same time, education and school and uh, football's going on, they're gonna be tired, but so are we, right? That, that's just how, what, what life is. But I'm so I'm captivated by that idea, but I'm captivated also of the then what. So whether it's pro career or not, what does that institution and what does their NIL ish program look like uh, upon launch into the real world? And um, I love the, the thought of considering those two things. And those are probably different or more ingrained thoughts than I had uh, before I stepped uh, back to just get a bigger perspective maybe eight months ago. Well, and we've kind of seen just the, that crossover, especially on the education front, you know, companies like Open Doors, you know, Blake Lawrence, uh, the CEO of, of them, the former Nebraska uh, football player. You, you have uh, others at Mogul, you know, so a couple ex-college exactly. football quarterbacks uh, running that operation. So, you know, it, it def definitely does kind of filter down. But uh, we'll, so certainly as we kind of bump up here against the time limit that uh, we discussed, you know, I'm, I'm sure, uh, you know, we will have additional thoughts on NIL just because it is such a, a changing world over the co next couple of weeks uh, as, as we continue head coach you. But uh, Bronco, thank you so much for, for joining me again it was another wild week in college football and in the nfl it was great to get your thoughts on, on all that uh, as well as some of the kind of pressing topics uh, that, that are facing the sport we're going to explore that a little bit more next week as well but uh for, for, for bronco mendenhall i'm brian fisher thanks for joining head coach you thanks everybody